0: And this is Buzz Eisenberg, my co-host Bill Newman is at 40,000 feet right now, returning from the continent of Africa, and uh, he should be here in Western Massachusetts uh, tomorrow back with us on the air, um, which I'm very much looking forward to. With us this morning is uh, our good friend, our district attorney here in the Northwestern District, David Sullivan, who is the Chief Law Enforcement Uh, official, um, our elected DA since I think 2011. Hello, David. Good morning. It is so nice to have you here. Great to be here. Our hope, and it looks like it's going to happen, is that uh, you will be joining us monthly to talk about what it is that you do and to add more transparency to uh, law enforcement in this region. So I really want to thank you for that.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: We have to come up with a really catchy name and some really good music. And uh, don't worry, Newman's coming, and he's got opinions, I'm sure. He always does. (laughs) So, Mr. District Attorney, I guess my first uh, question, I think the lead-in to the question is that for folks who don't know, um, the 25-year period after 1992 nationally for crime statistics, both the volume, that is the number of crimes that are committed in this country region by region, and the rate that is per capita, usually measured by 100,000 people, what is the crime rate? It dropped and dropped and dropped until about 2016, 2017. And since then, it's been increasing somewhat exponentially in some regions, particularly violent crime. Um, How are we doing here in this region?
1: Well, I think we've always done pretty well. um, Because I think the dynamic of our small communities in Hampshire and Franklin County just lends itself to uh, community engagement, people uh, being involved in the communities, good education systems, uh, that just the socioeconomic situation. Although Are those we're, the
0: criteria you attribute to low crime rates?
1: I think part of it, yeah, is education. You know, I think that uh, also uh, for people to be engaged in their communities, that uh, I think there's more accountability in a small community. and. You know, say Greenfield or Ashfield or Northampton. I think people come together. I think they're part of that uh, that fabric that uh, keeps the crime rate low. And I have to say, having six uh, colleges and a university in the area is certainly a, a big benefit. Um, the civility in a uh, in a community is very important for for crime.
0: Uh, you were uh, on the show two weeks ago, I think, and and uh, we were all promoting. A wonderful event for Big Brothers Big Sisters of Hampshire County. What was it called? I think it was called Big uh, Big Love Little Presentations or something like that. Yeah, little big, big performances. Love. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, and uh, I asked you at that time about why you were so committed for such a long time to Big Brothers Big Sisters, and um, I, I'm asking you that again because your answer, I think, is pretty insightful.
1: I think those mentoring relationships where. Uh, a trusted adult um, is really a role model, uh, a guide uh, for uh, a, a young person is very important, and particularly when you're overwhelmed as a single parent, which many of the littles are, that having that uh, adult in your life can be real life-changing and can keep you on uh, a good track uh, for success. And uh, you know, so many of our uh, crimes uh, in our district are. You know, substance abuse-related, whether it's alcohol or uh, drugs, is, that's what gets people off track. So having healthy relationships and healthy things to do is very important for young people.
0: Now, I know it's kind of a softball question because I've, you and I have talked about it many times and I've heard you speak about it many times. Um, but you, you're a law enforcement official, and we usually think of law enforcement as uh, the bad guys. And there's the good guys, right? That's not how you see
1: the world. No, I I think that um, when you look at it, uh, sometimes good people do bad things. And, you know, I think that when we look at people that come into the criminal justice system, uh, do we want them there for uh, 10 years, 20 years? Do we want them there for six months? Do we want them to to get out of that system a better person and somebody that doesn't resort to... uh, you know, criminal behavior. So I think that it's really important that we look at each person as an individual and see what that trajectory is, and to change it. This is Dan. Uh, I had a question hey, for
2: you uh, about looking at the individual you just referenced. Um, how much do you look back at their lives and what has happened to them since they've been a child up until they're maybe an adult? Well,
1: we we look at the present situation. What they what criminal behavior they're accused of, and we want to know, you know, what is maybe their substance uh, use disorder, what, uh, what have they done in the past to address it, if anything, and we depend on defense attorney. I'd say that one of the biggest equations in a criminal case is we depend on good defense attorneys to let us know about their background, because they have a better chance of making inquiries, maybe depending, uh, you know, say they had an abusive childhood or uh, they have a reason why um, something happened. So um, I can't emphasize that enough. And, you know, being a defense attorney for, you know, over 16 years, I understand how important it is for all that due diligence that goes into a case before you even arrive at court.
2: And a lot of those defense attorneys you're talking about are public defenders, right?
1: Yeah, we have outstanding uh, court-appointed attorneys and public defenders. We've always had a, a great reputation around the state for a really strong uh, defense bar. And, you yeah. know. You know, Buzz, you've been part of that defense bar, Bill Newman, uh, other people, and uh, it's kind of interesting that we're kind of a magnet in many ways because of we're such a uh, a great area to live that I think we've attracted uh, you know great attorneys over the years.
0: It's really true. Our our defense, very proud of our defense defense bar, and we're all products of our experience, one way or another. It always sort of leaks leaks out in our. In our daily, and, you know, one of my favorite expressions as a defense attorney is, "That's what he did. That's not who he is." And I know that you and I have talked about that. I know you adopt that. You did as a defense attorney, and you yeah. do as a prosecutor.
1: Yeah. you aren't. You aren't the. You know, you aren't the sum of that particular act. And uh, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a hopeful person, and uh, you know, you want to give that hope to to people that come into the system that they can uh, change their lives and do good things. I have to say that when when you have um, an open door to defense attorneys to be able to say, hey, uh, this is what really happened or this is something that you should take a look at, it's important to us because we have to do justice. And we have to do it. as many facts uh, that we can grab onto and, and what the evidence is. So the last thing we ever want to do is uh, convict an innocent person. So I think our office has a good reputation for having an open door, uh, to defense attorneys to bring things forward. Uh, you don't want a defense attorney to feel that, oh, if I tell the prosecutor something, they're just going to, um, misuse it or they're not going to really care about it. So, you know, I have to say that, um, I think that relationship that we have with the bar is very good. I, I and I will
0: say I've barged through that door a couple of sure. times myself.
1: Yeah. And you never barge.
0: Oh, thank you. Well, I'll be there this afternoon at lunchtime. That's fine.
1: <laughs> I think Bring, for those... lunch. Bring lunch from State Street Fruit. Okay. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> for those who might not be familiar with how uh, a DA's office in general works or yours in particular, you make charging decisions every day. What should we do with this particular incident that came out of this Hilltown uh, police department or perhaps the city police department? How does that system work Who makes those determinations?
1: Well, the initial determination is made by the police department, you know, for most misdemeanors and some felonies uh, that uh, they make the decision. It then comes to our office usually that day, uh, the day of, uh, quote, an arraignment. Um, At that point, we take a quick look at it. I can't say we give a thorough look because usually we have maybe 30, 40, 50 cases that are coming before the court, Uh, but we'll take a, a, a much better look um, you know, down that down that road, and um, you know, if the charges uh, seem to not fit uh, the the behavior, then we'll um, either dismiss them or, uh, in cases where it may uh, require some type of diversion that we don't want them in the criminal justice system. For example, you know, drug offenses. You know, we want to make sure that. We, we offer our uh, drug diversion and treatment program that, that titrates those cases uh, for treatment and uh, then is dismissed after people go through the, the right rehabilitation or treatment. So, um, But you, you always view each case individually. You look at who uh, the individual is, you know, what their circumstances are, what the crime is, and then we work with victims of crime and make sure that the justice is done on, on that ends of things. But. Um, we've started to do a data analysis. Um, our data management system isn't very good. It's antiquated. It's about 25 years old. But we're, we're looking at uh, how many cases uh, that come into court um, are either diverted or dismissed. And it's it, it's a trend that we've had probably for the last five years that uh, 40% are, are usually dismissed or diverted. So that's a good percentage for us because it was a lot lower way back when. And, and that's many, many of them are motor vehicle offenses. And as you know, people get into the cycle of suspension. So if you uh, even have a guilty finding on w- with a, a fine, it's going to result in another six months or a year. So we give uh, motorists that come before the court uh, the opportunity to um, reinstate their, their license, you know, get the, uh, the documentation they need to uh, to have the case taken care of. So uh, so I'm very happy a- about that percentage because it just means that those cases aren't cluttering uh, the criminal justice system and these people can, you know, rebuild their lives. As we know, the last thing you want is another license suspension. We want people to be especially licensed. in these rural areas yeah, we want where them, we don't have transportation. Yeah, we want them licensed and insured and, you know, and working. Yeah, and thankfully um, you know, the law was uh, was passed to let undocumented uh workers uh, and and folks in the community um, uh, Have that right to to drive in Massachusetts So I think that's going to be a real big step forward too to make sure that they you know Can can drive within the Commonwealth here here.
0: I'm so glad that you mentioned that I know that you were very supportive of the law to allow undocumented uh, individuals to get driver's license during uh, the Trump administration I uh, was part of a project along with Bill and others, to it was the uh, Immigrant um, Protection uh, Project, which we invented as part of the ACLU. And uh, I represented, I think it was 21 by the time I was finished, in various courts, Chicopee, Pittsfield, uh, Greenfield, um, people exactly as you just described, they were relying on a car because they needed it to get to work, they were sending the money back home, et cetera, et cetera. Every time, David, easily, the prosecutors, judges, clerk magistrates, I, I was 21 for 21, successful. Everybody thought I was doing some great lawyering. Mm-mm. Those people in our DA's offices who just didn't want to punish these people for trying to work and send money home and feed their family. The same was true for the clerk magistrates who did the show cause hearings. And over and over, they were found not responsible with a warning. If we, if we see you again, you'll be in trouble. And they got a second chance. Yeah. So, so I'm always very appreciative when I hear Law enforcement officials say that they're in favor of those. Uh, I think among your colleagues, did you find a lot of favor for that? That's Buzz Eisenberg's phone, and uh, he's very sorry I forgot to about it It might be Bill
1: calling from uh, the the plane. It
0: might be. He's at 40,000 feet. A satellite phone. But it's not.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Remember those big clunkers we used to have for the satellite phones? They were were bricks, I think, as I recall. (laughs) So anyway, I think a lot of your colleagues are also
0: in favor of that bill to allow yeah. undocumented. Have you seen a difference in the number of people that you're stopping? Uh,
1: we we haven't uh, really gotten any statistics on that. Um, you know, the law just went into effect, uh, but I'm sure that we're going to just have safer roads out there. That uh, you know, folks are going to they're going to get driver's ed. They're going to you know be able to, to to respond you know to an accident, and not feel like they're going to get deported. So right, you know, and uh, it'll be for everybody's good.
0: We are going to take a break. We're talking with Northwestern District Attorney David Sullivan. Um, We're very glad to have him here. When we come back, I want to talk about the state of the rule of law with you, Mr. District Attorney. You're in a great position to talk about it. And uh, I'll make sure that my phone is off. We'll be back right after these messages.
3: More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP.
1: My name is Jim Moran, owner of MJ Moran Mechanical Contractors. I am proud to support my community hospital through annual gifts and more recently by including Cooley Dickinson in my estate plans. Cooley Dickinson is always here for us and the people we love. A great way to leave a legacy is to include Cooley Dickinson in your will. Your legacy can transform healthcare for your community for future generations. CooleyDickinson.org slash Giving.
4: Fill in the blanks, H-A-M-B blank, R-G-E-R. You get it? How about B blank, T-T-E-R, L blank, N-C-H. I don't have a hard time filling in the blanks. You? If you need to fill in the blanks on your grocery list, hop into State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits right in downtown Northampton. Swing into their big free parking lot between classes before pickup, after drop-off, and fill in the blanks on your grocery list. Or pick up a quick stroller sandwich for lunch for you or your kids. Or heck, you could do all of your grocery shopping there. No blanks left on the list. And did I mention that they're called State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits? You could also pick up some L-I-Q blank O-R. You can fill in all the blanks on your grocery list at State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits on State Street, downtown Northampton.
3: It happens all over Massachusetts.
5: Can you tie my shoes?
6: In every home and every community.
5: You can on your bike. Learning can happen
6: anytime, anywhere.
7: we see you at practice this weekend.
3: And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary Very and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at Bass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
0: And we are back with our Northwestern District Attorney, David Sullivan. Uh, we're so excited because he's going to appear with us monthly and answer our questions and render more transparent. We're well, not more transparent. You're always trying to be transparent, but... Uh, give us a little peek into what you do and how you do it as district attorney for this region. Um, I have to talk about the rule of law. Um, And I, uh, you know, subjectively, I think it's imperiled right now. And a lot of very good people uh, keep grabbing it by the ears and trying to pull it along because it's it's slogging in mud right now. And I want to talk about it locally. But I first want to ask you, if you were the district attorney of Fulton County, outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, you knew that Donald Trump had called your secretary of state and asked him to find another 11,000 plus votes. Um, Would you be invoking a grand jury? Would you be looking for
1: an indictment uh, under the circumstances that we know about? I absolutely want to convene a, a grand jury, not only for that conversation, which we all know about because it was recorded. Um, but for all the activities that went behind the scenes, in other words, to know what the full dimension of um, inappropriate behavior, and it could be criminal behavior. Um, You know, that grand jury uh, that we heard from only could make recommendations, so now they have a second grand jury that's going to determine, was there criminal behavior? And uh, you go where the evidence leads you, in the law. And so if that law violated uh, voting um, laws, uh, criminal uh, laws, then um, the people involved should be prosecuted, to include Donald Trump. He's not above the law. Please elaborate. He's not above the law. We say no one's above the law. Yeah, I mean, we go back to United States versus Nixon, and we look at how you know people in power can, can really roadblock justice, and uh, it was very important that we proceeded in those cases, and fortunately we had Judge Sirica back then to make those decisions that we know set precedent. And uh, you know, President Trump, President Biden, nobody should be above the law. And if they have committed a criminal act, uh, then US attorney or uh, district attorney should, should go forward.
2: So this is Dan. In an <coughs> ideal world, I, I agree with you, we, we should you know uphold the rule of law. But I think the difficulty in this case is if you prosecute a former president and for some reason or another, they're found not guilty, there's always a political consequence to the prosecution, right, that could have impacts about the rule of law that we can't foresee in the future. Should that come into play when prosecutors are looking at charging somebody?
1: No. You can't, you can't make those political decisions. That's what the follow that may happen from a not guilty, or from a, or guilty, from a guilty for that matter, yeah. is something that uh, a prosecutor should really screen themselves away from, right. uh, because the real, uh, the real decision is, <clears throat> is this a substantive uh, case? Does it have the evidence, the gravitas to prosecute? And if th- all those things have aligned in Georgia or New York, wherever the cases may be, then that prosecutor should, uh, they take an oath to uphold the law, not just for the little people, but for everybody up to the top. So... Um, I think when you make those decisions, you, you make them uh, based upon uh, the evidence and your ability to present a case. Um, and, you know, you have to always make that judgment. Can you prove a criminal case beyond a reasonable doubt? And if, if they can't prove those cases beyond a reasonable doubt, in other words, if that conversation that uh, Donald Trump had uh, is deemed uh, not to be a, of a criminal character, then they're not going to be able to move forward. But I know that there's a lot of different uh, things that happened behind the scene that the the grand jury's uh, now aware of because there was a, a substantial number of witnesses that they brought before that, uh, that first grand jury, and I'm sure they'll do it for the second one.
0: And you, as our district attorney, David Sullivan, uh, you work, you have partners. You have partners in terms of law enforcement, that is, police agencies um, that you work with all the time. You have... Um, state chemical labs to determine whether or not, in fact, what people are charged with possessing actually was what they're charged with possessing. Yep. Um, and you have been burnt, particularly in the state lab arena. There were two, quote-unquote, chemists who falsified evidence resulting in tens of thousands of wrongful convictions um, because they lied in their certification that it was, in fact, drugs. Um Does that shake your confidence of your partnering? I mean, does it make you more careful? Uh, Also, the policing issues that we've had lately, Greenfield has its own set of problems and is beleaguered in that regard and now Holyoke to the south of us, not in your jurisdiction. Doesn't that make your job a lot harder when you're not 100% sure what your partners are doing?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think the Drug Lab case is indicative of the lack of attention that the state paid to these uh, labs. I mean, the one at UMass with uh, Sonia Farrakh uh, was understaffed, was didn't have any really good controls, very poor security. Um, I mean, they never even drug tested the people that work there. So, you know, y- you kind of look at it and you say, hey, you know, I, I mean, when you have good uh, standards and-, and good things, that- that's what really makes uh, you have better confidence. So, uh, it's been rebuilt uh, in the sense that there's now a, a very good lab in Springfield that the state Police run it's not through the Department of Public Health because as you well know with Sonia Farak in that lab um, that was about 200th on the list for uh, public health so yes you you need credible people that are going to testify because as you well know that uh, it changed it used to be able to just Give a certificate, and that proved. I, I could the case. never get a judge to let me call the chemist. Right, they so, wouldn't let me. You know, so uh, you know, the case, the Melinda Diaz case, you know, changed that fabric uh, to where the Supreme Court said, "Hey, you know, not everybody's honest. You should be able to question their credibility and their uh, their knowledge, experience, and everything else." So that changed. So I'm, uh, I'm
0: not sure if it's a fair question, but I have to ask it, which is, uh, do you? Uh, your eyes a little bit more open to the possibility that some evidence that you're being given was not
1: appropriately or justly arrived at? Oh, I think uh, when you look at evidence, you always have to question, you know, was this gained legally? There's motions to suppress um, that are filed, and some are credible. That if it wasn't seized legally, then you have to dismiss that that case if that's the sole evidence that's being presented. Um, So I think that... um, Every prosecutor has to have open eyes. Um, you, you you trust, but you verify. You know, so you know you don't you don't go into a case thinking that everything uh, um, is uh, is kosher, so to speak. You have to look at that and and really, um, and that's our job. We're independent prosecutors. We're, we, we don't work for police agencies. We don't work for. Um, other entities, uh, you know, the, the, the state police or whoever. Um, so it's very important that our prosecutors have that uh, that open eye toward uh, NAM propriety.
0: When you see trouble like
1: they've been having
0: in the beleaguered Greenfield Police Department, right now from 3 to 7 a.m. is not even covered in, in Greenfield because of budget decisions that have resulted from a lawsuit about discrimination that verdict that right now is over a million dollars with post-judgment interest accruing um and of course down in holyoke uh, problems with uh complainants um about police conduct not even being responded to and no action being taken do you actually talk to your mayors to your police chiefs do you from your perspective about
1: conduct shaping in terms of what they do and how they do it well we have a uh high standard of accountability and we want to make sure that our police departments are held accountable and we're one of the first DA's offices in Massachusetts to have uh, Brady protocols to make sure that any uh, uh, inappropriate finding of credibility, of character, uh, would be given to defense attorneys and the same goes for for Greenfield. Um, And so Greenfield is a city in crisis because, um, you know, decisions were made that um, obviously resulted in uh, in a finding of discrimination. It's on appeal. But because of that, the city council made a, a real budget decision and it cut a substantial amount of money from that budget. Unfortunately, the people hurt are the people on the bottom. Mm-hmm. As you well know, you know, it's... Uh, it's uh, you know first in last out, so they're all senior people at the time where these budget cuts were aimed. But it was really the the patrol officers that that suffered, and the and the city suffered because they they don't have that um, that coverage. And that city of uh, Greenfield needs coverage; they certainly do, and that's you know one of our most substantial communities. For population and for crime,
0: it's a city of almost twenty thousand people. When I, and think,
1: when I think about it, I mean, you know, you have a domestic violence, uh, you know, call. Uh, do you want a delay of five, 10, 20 minutes? Absolutely not. You want to be able to respond to that call immediately. And uh, you know, I am just hoping that uh, until they get fully staffed again, which apparently uh, they have some grants and some other budget things that they're going to be able to get up to speed next year. Hopefully, the community uh, will not be in peril during those times. Here, here, and finally, Dan Torres. Uh, you've heard the district
0: attorney speak a number of times, but you've never seen him dance. Last That's week, true. we got to see him dance. That's oh it. yeah,
1: where was where was he? Oh, well, was at the uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters benefit over on. Uh,
0: when they said, big love, little performances, mm-hmm. his was a little performance.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what were you dancing? <laughs> well, we got up on stage uh, at the end of the show. It was and tremendous. We had a fine time. and We uh, had the mayor of East Hampton.
0: We had a lot of dignitaries and a lot of people who really cared about um, our kids, and, uh, and understood that um, public safety is wrapped into how our children are raised and what kind of role models they have. So I believe
2: it was recorded as well, if I'm not mistaken. Ooh, we can
0: make some money with that. That's, <laughs> <for you. laughs> that's it. <you> know? <laughs> Uh-oh, I'm about to be prosecuted. <laughs> that's,
1: that's, a, that, that's legal extortion. You, know? <laughs> you make your own bed, you got to sleep in it. But, well, uh, District
0: Attorney David Sullivan, you've been doing this now for, what, 13 years? Yeah, yeah 12 years, yep. 12 years here in the Northwestern District. And uh, we can't thank you enough. I know our listeners really gain from hearing uh, your voice, and we can't wait till next month when you're back. Great. It's great
1: to be here, Buzz. Thank you.
0: Thank you. We will be right back with Larry Hott. He's got some cool films, including Retrograde, to talk about. We'll be right back
7: quarter I got a cow that went dry and a hen that won't lay. A big, A big stack, stack of, of bills that, bills that get, get bigger, bigger each day. The county will... Haul.
3: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
8: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner addressed the ongoing controversies surrounding the Greenfield Police Department during her State of the City address Monday night.
9: I understand the gravity of the jury's decision citing racial animus. Hearing those painful words was not only devastating for me, but for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department.
8: The mayor also blamed city council for impeding progress toward police reform by refusing to allocate money toward a police
9: audit. When I requested funding from the city council to hire independent professionals to examine internal operations to detect the presence of implicit and
8: systemic racial bias, I had high hopes. Currently, the city is in the process of hiring three new officers with the help of a U.S. Department of Justice grant. A Southampton man is free on bond after pleading not guilty to sexual assault charges in Franklin Superior Court. Matthew James Tebow must maintain a curfew and wear a GPS monitoring device. In Franklin County, Tebow faces multiple counts of rape, as well as single counts of extortion by threat of injury and assault. He's also facing charges in Hampshire County, including four counts of rape, stalking, assault and battery, and numerous other charges. Amherst residents will get the chance to decide the fate of their new $98 million elementary school at the site of the former Fort River School on May 2nd. Town Council voted unanimously on that date for the Proposition 2.5 debt exclusion vote.
6: A little bit of sunshine this morning, mostly cloudy by noon, then scattered rain and snow showers after 3 p.m. with a high of 40 to 44. Cloudy tonight, some rain and pockets of freezing rain after 2 a.m., an overnight low of 28 to 34. Thursday, scattered showers in the morning, then partial afternoon sunshine, a high of 44 to 48, and then a rain-snow mix possible late in the day on Friday. 22 News Storm Team meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP.
8: This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
10: Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El lunes, la Casa Blanca dio a las agencias gubernamentales 30 días para garantizar que no tengan la aplicación TikTok de propiedad china en dispositivos y sistemas federales. En un intento por mantener seguros los datos de Estados Unidos, todas las agencias federales deben eliminar TikTok de los teléfonos y sistemas y prohibir que el tráfico de Internet llegue a la empresa, dijo la directora de la Oficina de Administración y Presupuesto, Shalanda Young, a las agencias en un memorando de orientación. La prohibición ordenada por el Congreso a fines del año pasado sigue a acciones similares de Canadá, la Unión Europea, Taiwán y más de la mitad de los estados de Estados Unidos. La prohibición de dispositivos, si bien afecta a una pequeña porción de la base de usuarios de TikTok en Estados Unidos, agrega combustible a las llamadas para una prohibición total de la aplicación para compartir videos. Las preocupaciones de seguridad nacional sobre China aumentaron en las últimas semanas después de que un globo chino voló sobre los Estados Unidos. TikTok, propiedad de ByteDance, ha dicho que las preocupaciones se deben a información errónea y ha negado haber usado la aplicación para espiar a los estadounidenses. Este martes, el Comité de Asuntos Exteriores de la Cámara votará un proyecto de ley que le daría al presidente Joe Biden la autoridad para prohibir TikTok en todos los dispositivos de Estados Unidos. En otras informaciones, la gobernadora de Massachusetts, Maura Healey, dio a conocer el lunes un plan de reforma fiscal de aproximadamente 750 millones de dólares destinado a ofrecer ahorros significativos para familias, inquilinos, personas mayores y otros. La gobernadora está proponiendo varios cambios al Código Fiscal. El plan necesitará la aprobación legislativa. Se espera que Healy presente su proyecto de ley de reforma tributaria el miércoles junto con las recomendaciones presupuestarias requeridas para el próximo año fiscal. Yo soy Johan Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP.
8: This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
3: This is Talk the Talk.
0: That was pretty dramatic. Wow. I am here in studio with our uh, giant of a filmmaker here locally. Larry Hutt, it is Cool Films. Hi, Larry. Good morning. Small in stature, but tall in film knowledge. Huge. You're How tall,
11: huge. Larry? What's, <laughs> what song
2: did that come from?
11: Uh, that was uh, from the I Love Lucy show. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it was. Are not. you sure he's credentialed by the Oscars? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, 1976. Larry, you have
0: not some splaining oh. to do. <laughs> <laughs> so... Talk about us, uh, what we've got in front of us here.
11: Well, I've got a little hobby horse to ride. The uh, Oscars for the documentary are based on several hundred films that are submitted each year, long and short form. And we boil those down to the 15 on the short list. And then everybody uh, in the documentary uh, committee, virtual committee, watches those and they choose the top five. And then the entire Academy votes on those. So it's a kind of an arbitrary process, but uh, using our professional judgment, we come up with always the interesting, if not the absolute best films, and there are other festivals that sometimes I think do an even better job, but the Academy is the one everybody knows. But on that list of 15, there was one that I was surprised did not
0: make it to the top, and that one is called Retrograde. And I want to talk about that with you, and I asked you a similar question last week, but uh, what I really want to know is when you're, Applying your subjective criteria, mm-hmm. this is, and I understand you're given great latitude to determine yes. which is best. Are you thinking about what's best in your view based on your experience as a piece of art? Are you thinking about what was best for us to see? That is, what, are, are you trying to pick ones that you think we will like the most or just that you and your peers will like the most?
11: I am thinking of the ones that I think have done the best. Job of filmmaking and I am not thinking about, oh, the audience needs to see this because it's an important film. I try not to let that influence me, although that's hard sometimes not to, because say, oh, this is so important. But if it's a lousy film, I it would be embarrassing. <laughs> I don't want people to, to go to see a film that they come out of saying, why did you recommend that? The subject's important, but it was poorly executed. Mm. Uh, when you get to the top 15 films, almost all of them are worth watching. You can debate it. I had a debate with somebody the other day about Fire of Love, which is a film I recommended last week about the two scientists who were volcanologists who uh, died in a fiery death um, very dramatically in a beautiful film narrated by Miranda July in in a very subtle, soft, sexy voice because it was actually a love story. And this person said to me that he thought he was bored to death watching this film. And I was talking with him for a while about it. And then I realized, wait a second. Four or five hundred documentary filmmakers on the committee voted this to be nominated in the top five. So I'm not alone in thinking this is a good film. doesn't mean that we're absolutely right. Of course, somebody is entitled to their opinion that they might have been bored by it. But it's not. And it's not a consensus. It's a ranked choice voting. So I try to. To say this film is well made, not whether it's important or not. If it's important and it's well made, all the better. My formula is that films either rise above, fall below, or hit right on the mark the level of the subject matter. So if you have very strong subject matter and do a great job with it, you're likely to have an audience pleaser. Uh, And if you really do, superb job on a on a subject matter that is not a slam dunk, and I have one. I bought one of those today to talk about again. Turned every page. The yeah. film about the editing relationship between Robert Cairo and Robert Gottlieb. Incredible. I mean, if you just hear somebody tell you that, you just, you, you, your eyes will glaze over immediately. So how do you make an exciting film? About well, if the you know your crisis? work, their work, then you're yeah. not going to yeah. glaze over. But let's start with Retrograde. Well, Retrograde is a great example of a film that has a very very strong subject matter. The filmmaker Matthew Heineman is one of the greatest documentary filmmakers living today. And I haven't done the math, but I think he's somewhere in his mid-30s because I first encountered him about seven years ago when I learned that he was 28 years old and made a film called Cartel Land, which I had the luck to see at a film festival in an audience uh, where several hundred people rose as one at the end and applauded, and he wasn't even there. Um, A fantastic film about the cartels along the southern border of the United States, uh, the people, their vigilantes trying to fight them, um, how basically they were the same kind of people. Uh, And he embedded themselves with both of these groups. There were any number of shootouts that he is filming, and you just have the question of, okay, is the guy insane to put himself in such danger and to make such beautiful work? The cinematography, which he was doing himself, and then the editing, so it's very rare when you find a filmmaker who can do it all. Uh, and this is also another one of my pet peeves. Frequently you will find filmmakers who try to do it all, and they fail when they get to the editing because they have no perspective. You know the phrase, kill your darlings, right? You have to be able to edit, you have to be able to get rid of in writing, you have to take your beautiful sentences and cut them down and get rid of the ones you love in order to have a coherent
0: short piece. The same thing with film. It's interesting. uh, uh, A number of times we've had Harry Karamedis, who is a retired uh, film editor. He did Back to the Future series. Mm -hmm. He did many Hollywood films that you'd uh, hear about. However, Mm -hmm. what he really loved—the beginning of his career—he did sixty-one documentaries. That's Mm -hmm. how he Uh and he he loved being part journalist through editing, right? Telling stories which are important.
11: And I, I grew up in the world of PBS where you had a time limit, 56 minutes and 46 seconds, or 26, 36, whatever it is, they keep changing all the time, but you were told this is how many seconds, this is how many frames you have, right? So if you can't edit, if you can't kill your darlings, then you can't make a film. And when a a filmmaker is also the editor and there's nobody looking over his or her shoulder saying, you know what, something has to go, particularly when there's no time limit, Then you get bloated films, but Matthew Heineman is not one of those. His film Retrograde, which is about the last days of the the Afghanistan war, um, is a piece of beauty and terrifying at the same time. I think if we hear a clip, we'll get an idea of what Retrograde is all about.
7: It's strange and confusing time right now. The Americans trained me and after being committed for so many years, I just don't believe that the Americans are going to retrograde
9: and leave the country.
4: Our country is everything
7: we have. Since the U.S. left I can see the sense of abandonment.
11: The voice you're hearing there is of General Sami Sadat. He is the commander of the Afghan forces. The film is very much a portrait of him and also a portrait of a battalion of Green Berets who want to fight, who want to stay. You see them when they get the news that it's time to pull out the retrograde and then you follow them and sami sadat the general as he tries to hold his men together as he tries to keep up their morale knowing that the u.s is about to pull out and everything they fought for is going to be lost we find out later on in the film that the interviews with sami sadat that you've seen in afghanistan continue in some safe place outside of Afghanistan. He waits to the last minute. And we also see some of those horrifying scenes at the airport as families are trying to get out. The power of this film is in Matthew Heinemann's perfect eye. He knows when to linger. He knows how to get people to talk and reveal themselves in the most harrowing of circumstances and then put it together in a dramatic arc and you come away from this thinking what did we just do do we do we screw over all these people how do we get there in the first place and it made me think about you know are we ever going to go into ukraine and if we do would we ever get out I and mean, these these are big questions and the other thing that flashed in my mind was a film from 10 12 years ago called restrepo a famous film about afghanistan made by Sebastian Younger and Tim Hetherington about a battalion on a hilltop in Afghanistan, not wondering what they're fighting for, but learning that they're only fighting for each other. So I think we have to take a break. Is that right? And we'll come back and talk a little bit more about these two films about Afghanistan.
0: You got my attention, Larry.
3: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal
12: combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns.
5: We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to elicit fear and power and control uh, by white supremacists. And
4: it's not an issue that's going away easily.
3: 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Alison Bechdel's
0: graphic memoir, Fun Home, left off the page and onto the Broadway stage. Alison describes her landmark comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For, as half op-ed column, half serialized Victorian novel. Alison Bechdel will be at Smith this Thursday, reading from her new graphic memoir, The Secret to Superhuman Strength, and more. Alison Bechdel, a reading, plus a book signing with the Broadside Bookshop, this Thursday at John M. Green Hall at Smith College.
6: It's free. Get tickets online at Smith College Tickets. Business West announces the 2023 Difference Makers. This year's honorees include Nathan Costa of the Springfield Thunderbirds, Stephen and Jean Graham of Toner Plastics Group, and Helix Human Services. Read their inspiring stories at businesswest.com. Join Business West on April 27th at the Log Cabin and celebrate the Difference Makers. Network with hundreds of business and civic leaders. The 2023 Difference Makers, sponsored by Burkhart Pizzinelli PC, the Royal Law Firm, Tommy Carr Auto Group, and Westfield Bank. Celebrate the Business West Difference Makers, April 27th at the Log Cabin.
7: Push, push, come on, one more. Let's go, go, go.
8: Is this your idea of personal training? If so, you've got it all wrong. Or perhaps we've got it all right. At Fitness Together, where we meet you where you are to get you where you wanna be. Fitness Together trainers help you reach your goal at any fitness level, even despite ailments and physical limitations. So don't let a misconception keep you from having the energy to do what you love. Learn how you can get it together at Fitness Together Amherst or Northampton. If your Spanish-speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among co-workers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100 percent of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton.
6: Skates cutting the ice
3: and sticks pounding boards. The slap of the puck and a peeing off the post. The chirp of the whistle and the blaring of the horn. Hockey is here. Tune in for all the sounds of the season right here on the UMass Sports Network. 1015, 1400, and 1240 WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
0: And we are back with Cool Films with Larry Hott, and we're talking about the film Retrograde, which had to do with our presence in Afghanistan and the decision to leave. And
11: I was comparing that film to Restrepo, which is a film about Afghanistan made 12 years ago by Sebastian Unger and Tim Hetherington, um, talking about how dangerous it is to these filmmakers. Tim Hetherington was killed a few years later. Um, while covering the war, I think, in Syria. Um, so one of the things I remember about uh, Restrepo was there was a scene where the soldier had obviously taken his cell phone, propped it up in front of him, and filmed himself firing and yelling to his fellow soldiers about what's going on. And It was just so intense, so personal, and I thought, How, who has the time to do that? Well, a couple of years ago, I was making a film called The Warrior Tradition about Native Americans in the military. Oh, I saw that. And while they, why, would they, why would they fight for an army, that, for a government that tried to annihilate them? And I was talking to each of these soldiers about their experience, if they have any personal footage. And this one guy says to me, hey, did you ever see Restrepo? And I said, yeah. He said, remember that cell phone shot? I said, yeah. He said, that's me. That's my shot. I said, do you still have it? He said, Yes. And he sent it to me, and it's in our film. So I, I got to take a little bit of footage from Estreppo and put it into the film The Warrior Tradition. So earlier on, we were talking about this idea of uh, the films fall above or fall below the level of the subject matter or nail it right on the head. And what's an example of horrible subject matter, subject matter that nobody would want to make a film about? You go with your proposal to a foundation, they would say, I'm sorry, you know, it's intellectually interesting but kind of boring. And that is the film Turn Every Page. Okay, so here's the elevator pitch. I want to make a film by my father, who's 90 years old, and he's an editor. And he's been editing another writer who is almost 90 years old for 50 years. Does that sound like an interesting film? <laughs> get, get out of here, kid. Well, no, I guess the question is who's the writer and who's the editor? Okay, so the writer is Robert Cairo, famous for The Power Broker about Robert Moses, famous for how having completed four volumes on Lyndon Johnson, four volumes over 50 years of writing, okay? And his editor, is Robert Gottlieb, has been his editor for 50 years and has also edited 600 other. Books. One of my favorites that comes up in this film is he's talking to Lizzie Gottlieb, his daughter, and, and I think also uh, one of his other grandchildren. They're in a bookstore, and he's pointing out the book Catch-22. And he says, you know why it's called Catch-22? Because at the time, he was working with Joseph Heller, that's the writer, and Gottlieb says at the time, I pointed out to him that Mila 18 by uh, Leon Uris had just come out, was a big hit. So we couldn't have a book with 18 in the title. So we had to choose another number, and 22 was funny. So that's why it's called Catch 22. So let's hear a clip from this film to get a sense of how the filmmaker was able to overcome boring subject matter and make a brilliant film.
3: James Johnson, the relationship between means and ends. No question is more important than that.
8: I love those books. I love those books. Robert Caro's work goes so beyond empathy. There was healing in it and strength and power.
3: The Power Broker helped to shape how I think about politics.
8: He reminds us how power changes all of our lives. If we understand power, then maybe we can imagine a better future.
12: Bob Gottlieb is a superb editor. The
4: most important editor of the
13: post-war period. So about how many books have you edited? Between
12: 600 and 700.
7: Bob cared as much about the writing as I did.
9: Two guys are the best in their field. Bob Carroll, the greatest political writer of our time. Bob Gottlieb, the greatest editor of his time. Robert Carroll in his 80s.
11: They are indeed the greatest at their jobs. After watching this film, I went right down to Raven. And I bought the four volumes on Lyndon Johnson, paid sixty one dollars. It would have been several hundred dollars had I bought them new. And I'm sorry, Robert Carey, you don't get any of the proceeds. It goes <laughs> only to only to the bookstore. That's another issue. One of my favorite scenes in this film, this is the one everybody talks about. Five minutes of the film is debate is devoted to a debate about whether to use a semicolon. Okay. Now if you can make that interesting in a film, then you get the award. And I would that's why I'm disappointed this didn't not get nominated. And more people didn't see this film. Not because the subject matter is important. It's not about the environment. It's not about race relations. It's not about authoritarianism. It's about editing. It's about how a good book is made. But the filmmaking is so much fun. It's so enjoyable. And you learn so much from it. And that section about the semicolon includes an interview with the New York the New Yorker magazine's copy editor, who wrote Eat, Shoots, and Leaves, you might know that book, about what she has to do to fight <laughs> to get the semicolon used properly. <laughs> yeah. There's another wonderful scene in the film where uh, you learn in the film that uh, they won't let her, neither Cairo or Gottlieb will let her film them uh, editing. But by the end of the film, she's convinced them to allow her to film them editing, but with no sound. <laughs> no sound. So the introduction to this is they're walking through the hallways of Gottlieb's office and they can't find a number two pencil. All right, now it's probably a setup, right? It's probably staged, but still, it's hilarious. So she's she has made uh, gold out of dross and she's
0: done a wonderful job with it. And of course, the, the backdrop, I, know, I taught political science for 17 years and famously the definition of power is... Um, the ability to get others to do what you want them to do, whether they like it or not. So the fundament underneath all of that editing and authoring is a really important subject. That it's
11: control, too. And this is the power of the editor. Um, and I think in this case, uh, from, from I remember correctly from the credits, uh, the filmmaker was not the editor. Uh, that means you have a really good collaboration. And that's, for me, that's the fun of filmmaking, is working with the editor.
0: Well, incredible films that uh, I, I shouldn't say that because I haven't seen them, but I trust Larry Hott. Thank you. And this is Cool Films with Larry Hott. For those of you who have been listening this morning, coming right up after the news break, another full hour of our program. We are going to be talking about protests. We are going to also be talking about January 6th with a man who is director of the center uh, in Seton Hall Law School that has done an enormous survey about January 6th, and the insurrectionists. We'll be right back after these messages.
5: Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age
12: who are homebound due to short- or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A
5: volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at forbeslibrary.org
8: outreach.
2: Caring for someone with cancer is hard.
3: Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, Northampton Radio Group Station.
8: It's 10 o'clock.
3: This is CBS News on the Hour. Sponsored by General Steel.
12: I'm Deborah Rodriguez. TikTok is coming to the rescue of parents who can't seem to keep their kids off their screens. TikTok says every user under the age of 18 will soon have their accounts default to a one-hour daily screen time. That's partly to prevent teens from endless scrolling. Teen users can turn off the new default setting, which is set to roll out in the coming weeks. If the 60-minute limit is reached users will need to enter a passcode. This amid scrutiny over TikTok and other social media platforms over their impact on young users. Allison Keyes, CBS News. Insulin prices are about to drop for diabetes patients. Eli Lilly says it'll cut prices immediately for some older medications by as much as 70 percent and it'll expand a cap on costs insured patients pay to fill subscriptions. California's Sierra Nevada mountains are getting dumped on again. Several feet of snow have fallen on the piles already there from last week's storm. Barbara Fredericks has been stranded at a bus terminal in Sacramento for three days. It's a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare. We're missing our families. We're missing our jobs. We're missing our homes and our animals. More than 100,000 customers have no power. Overseas, Greece's transport minister has resigned after a fiery head-on collision between a passenger train and a freight train. At least 36 people were were killed, dozens injured. Correspondent Holly Williams is at the foreign desk.
8: Some passengers were reportedly thrown through the train's windows on impact. Others smashed through the glass to escape. When the sun came up, the carnage was laid bare. Greece's deadliest train disaster in over 50 years. Some survivors made it home today. Others never will.
12: A police standoff in Kansas City, Missouri, is almost 12 hours old. KCTV's Joe Hennessy says it began when SWAT officers tried to enter a home to execute a warrant.
4: Around 9.30 last night, tactical response team officers knocked on the door looking for a suspect or suspects. They announced their presence, tried to enter the home, and then
12: say someone from inside shot all three of them say none of the wounds is life-threatening. Yet another reason to encourage kids to stop vaping. New study by the American Heart Association links inhaling nicotine and THC, the psychoactive component in pot, to depression and anxiety in teenagers and young adults. CBS's Jim Krasula. Sixty percent of those who admitted to vaping reported anxiety versus
3: about 40 percent who never vaped.
12: The Dow is down right now, So's the S&P off too. This is CBS News.
3: Business owners, General Steel can help save you thousands by owning your own custom designed buildings. Call 888 98 Steel or visit GeneralSteel.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly need new wiper blades but not sure which ones are right for you, the Professional Parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts can help. We'll show you options for your vehicle and even install your new wiper blades for free. Right now, save $10 per pair on Bosch Focus wiper blades so you can see better in any weather. Stop by your local O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.
5: Cookie wants to be a professional wrestler. I'm Cookie Serratos, and I'm 11 years old. She also wants to win all the medals. That's why Cookie and her family make every day count, squeezing out her best with Go-Go Squeeze. Okay, Cookie, let's break for a Go-Go Squeeze. Go-Go Squeeze fruit-on-the-go pouches are a nutritious snack made from 100% fruit with no sugar added. Go, Cookie! Because when you nurture your kids, you squeeze out the best in them. Squeeze out the best with Go-Go Squeeze.
8: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Eversource and National Grid gas customers can expect to see a lower monthly bill. The Department of Public Utilities approved additional reductions in gas supply rates. With these approved reductions, customers can expect to see a 10 percent decrease in a typical residential heating bill. The new rates go into effect today and last through May. Energy and Environmental Affairs Secretary Rebecca Tepper says the Hilly Driscoll administration is working urgently to deliver relief and a more stable energy future for our residents. A Southampton home was destroyed after a massive fire caused it to burn to the ground last night. According to Southampton police, all firefighters responded to 79 Maple Street. Only parts of the garage were left standing. Southampton Fire Chief John Workman says the fire originated in the rafters and spread to the attic. No word yet on any injuries or what caused the fire. An Amherst resident is accusing municipal officers of discrimination against a black-owned business. Vera Cage of Longmeadow Drive submitted a complaint against both the town and the Drake, according to the Gazette. Cage alleges the Drake was not required by the town to install a ramp to their stage, whereas a black-owned business, Hazel's Blue Lagoon, was required to, per the building commissioner. Cage also alleges the town inequitably distributed ARPA funds, in part due to institutional racism
6: a little bit of sunshine this morning mostly cloudy by noon then scattered rain and snow showers after 3 p.m with a high of 40 to 44 Cloudy tonight, some rain and pockets of freezing rain after 2 a.m., an overnight low of 28 to 34. Watch out for a couple of scattered icy surfaces early Thursday morning. Otherwise, it's scattered showers in the morning, then partial afternoon sunshine, a high of 44 to 48, and then a rain-snow mix possible late in the day on Friday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This
3: is talk the talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
0: You know, in this country, like in so many countries, chained we we elect people to to uh, guide us in the direction our country, our polity, our society, our culture should be going in. But quite often, it's the people who are not out front running for office. It's the people who are activists and passionately trying to. Uh, ensure that we develop in a way that is more civilized and protective of our planet um and we have just such a person here today we have Murray Banjani hello murray thank you for joining us
5: hi thanks for having me
0: so you are the campaign facilitator of fix the grid and you're the mm-hmm. co-executive director of slingshot let's start with slingshot could you tell us what slingshot is and what it does
5: definitely Slingshot is a regional environmental health uh, nonprofit. We work with communities most impacted by environmental health threats to take aim at polluters and build community power. So what that looks like is partnering with these groups uh, on a day-to-day basis as time goes on and building their campaigns against uh, polluting infrastructure and Uh, you know, corporations that are harming their health and their future, whether that's landfills, power plants, pipelines, other types of energy infrastructure, um, power, you know, all sorts of stuff. We, we are there to help them in the ways that they need as they are fighting for their future.
0: So it's really about environmental health. Is that Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And fix the grid. What is fix the grid?
5: Fix the Grid is a regional grassroots campaign that aims to accelerate a just transition to a clean, renewable and democratic um, electric grid system. So it kind of connects the dots between the folks on the ground in these impacted communities and the regional energy landscape of various stakeholder groups and decision makers and policy folks who are running our energy markets, running our grid to make sure that we have electricity when and where we need it. Uh, And that can feel very amorphous. So Fix the Grid tries to connect those dots and move towards a system that's more accountable, more transparent, and definitely much more renewable because as things stand right now, we are way too dependent on fossil fuels.
0: Well, both Slingshot and Fix the Grid, both are, consider themselves to be grassroots organizations. Could you explain what is meant by that what it means to you and why that's important
5: to me grassroots means that it's really power that comes from the ground up from the bottom up the people individual people residents community members who are who are experiencing these problems on a day-to-day basis they are experts in these situations from their own experience and they are building power by getting together um, and having strength in numbers, lifting up their voices and steering the direction they want their community, their state, their region to go in. Um, as opposed to, what, what as an organizer, what I would call it more grass tops. And that's where kind of the top down, the people who are in positions um, of elected power or power through money um, are making the decisions and imposing those decisions on the people at the community level. So grassroots is really important because it is the more democratic and more um fair system of governance where the people who are impacted the people who are dealing with that, that reality on a, a daily basis are the ones who are deciding what they want that reality to look like
2: hey Miri, this is dan i i want to know how well western massachusetts is doing from an environmental perspective are we heavily dependent on fossil fuels? and can you talk a little bit about the state of massachusetts as well
5: Definitely. Western Mass is an interesting you know, collection of different communities. It depends on what part of the valley you're talking about. Springfield, obviously, is a heavily impacted environmental justice community that for a while was the asthma capital of the US, which meant that it was the worst place in the country to live um, for respiratory impacts. And one in five children in Springfield has asthma. Um, And Springfield has uh, luckily shed that title of asthma capital in recent years, Um, but that doesn't mean that everything is all great. There are still many sources of pollution to deal with and new sources of pollution like a proposed fracked gas pipeline uh, that are on the horizon that the community is working to fight off. So on the one hand, you have communities like that, especially lower income communities, communities of color. And then, of course, in other parts of the valley, there's a lot more green space, a lot of um, different types of communities that haven't dealt with as much um, historical impact of environmental injustice. Overall, um, I think Western Mass is definitely uh, working to push more towards renewable energy and uh, better alternatives for our environment and for our health and um that's the case for massachusetts as well we as a state have some really strong climate legislation some of the strongest in the country we have a governor a new governor who um has promised to make climate a key part of her administration and she has taken some steps so far to indicate that that is a priority of hers we have the first ever in the nation cabinet level climate chief in melissa hoffer so things are hopefully looking good for us. Now we have to put all that talk and all of those positions into practice and really implement um, the the legislation we've passed and make sure that we are continuing to prioritize the kind of electric grid um, and energy system that we need.
0: And towards that end, uh, Maree Benjani, the, as co-executive director of Slingshot and campaign facilitator for Fix the Grid, um, You are uh, hosting, hopefully, tomorrow, I love the term, Boston Fee Party Rally, uh, Thursday, March 2nd at 11 o'clock, when you're going to invite activists to come and to have a meaningful impact on those very leaders you were alluding to before, to help reform our New England electric grid that one day will end, we hope, our reliance on fossil fuels. Can you tell us a little bit about that rally?
5: Definitely, thanks, Buzz. So the Boston Fee Party, as we've called it, is um, an action to call attention to the skyrocketing electric rates that we have been dealing with this winter and the dependence on fossil fuels that has caused those rates. Um, And so the idea, you know, we went with that (laughs) framing because um, our regional grid operator, ISO New England, they are running our electric system in a way that continues to benefit fossil fuels and keep us hooked on those polluting forms of energy. And that means that we are reliant on the global prices and volatility around gas. And that is a big thing that led to electric rates increasing big time up to upwards of 40% um, over the winter for some customers around the region. Um, And ISO New England, we we as ratepayers have no direct way to influence their decisions. They have no accountability. Let me just interrupt
0: you just for us. any listener who doesn't know what is mm-hmm. ISO New England.
5: Yes, they're the, the grid operator. So they're the ones who Um, literally have a a very large switchboard in Holyoke where they decide which power plants turn on when. They call on various sources sources of electricity depending on what demand is looking like. They run the energy markets, all the kind of wonky behind the scenes stuff to make sure that when we flick a switch, the light comes on. Um, So they're the kind of the wizard behind the curtain, making sure that the electric system works in New England. And
0: how responsible historically has ISO New England been with regard to the environmental concerns you've expressed?
5: They have not been particularly willing to take a leadership role in this realm. They continue to push back on calls for renewable energy by saying that um, they need to prioritize reliability and claiming that renewable energy is not reliable. You know, the typical phrase when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow and all of that and trying to dismiss the alternatives that we have available to us. Um, At the end of the day though, we have to remember that renewable energy and reliability are not mutually exclusive and that our current system that is so dependent on gas is not reliable as it, as it stands. We actually had a situation on Christmas Eve, as some folks have called the nightmare before Christmas, um, where when temperatures dropped dr- dramatically across the region, we actually came very, very close to rolling blackouts. And uh, the reason for that was that a number of facilities that were supposed to provide electricity did not come online. We're not able to provide that power and all of those facilities were fossil fuel facilities. None of them are renewable energy. And so it shows that our fossil fuels that ISN New England likes to clings to so dearly are not actually the solution that, we, that some folks like to claim they are.
0: So when, at the rally tomorrow, the Boston Fee Party rally tomorrow, could you tell us more about that and who's going to speak there and how people can learn more about it?
5: Definitely. We are really excited to come together in Boston and uh, cheer on the new Healy administration in their um, new directions related to our grid. And we have a few awesome speakers. Um, we have State Representative Mike Con- Connolly, um, who is uh, from the uh, 13th Middlesex District, I think, or maybe 26th. <laughs> it might be 26th Middlesex District. and he. Um, is you know going to talk about the the leadership role that Massachusetts can take on in this arena. Um, we have Noemi Rodriguez, who's a community member and activist with Green Roots in East Boston. Um, they have been fighting a, a an electric substation in an environmental justice community for years, and so Noemi is really well you know has directly experienced what it looks like for our energy system to impact. These communities on a regular basis, and um, and then we have Gabe Cohen Glennick from Neighbor to Neighbor. He's an organizer who works on a regular basis with uh, working class communities discussing housing justice, and those are the same communities that are especially hit hard by our rising electric rates. Um, so we'll be exploring all of those topics of why our prices going up, how, what does it have to do with fossil fuels, and what do we need from our state leadership and our regional stakeholders to. Fix this situation.
0: And what else are you going to do to entertain and keep happy all the people that come, the activists that are there listening to these speeches, but also need a break?
5: We've got lots of music. Um, We'll have uh, two different bands playing music for us and leading chants. And uh um, as the name of the event suggests, the Boston Fee Party, we will be figuratively dumping high electric rates into the Boston Harbor. So um, to find out what exactly that means, you'll have to join us on Thursday at 11 a.m. Uh, next to the Boston Children's Museum. Uh, I will say there's a slight chance that we will postpone due to weather. We'll, we're still waiting a few more hours to to figure that out. but. Um, you know, we are New Englanders. We can we can brave winter weather um, for a good cause. So uh, we hope that you'll join us in Boston for this event.
0: Well, if people want to find out more about how to join you uh, in the Boston Fee Party Rally tomorrow, uh, where do people go? How do they find out more about it? How do they figure out if there's uh, carpooling, etc.? cetera?
5: Um, so the website for Fix the Grid is probably a good place to start. That's fix. The, hyphen the half hyphen grid dot org. Um, and that's where we have more information about the campaign and upcoming opportunities to get involved. Um, and also a contact form for people to reach out with any questions. Um, and from there, folks can RSVP for the rally. Um, and we'll make sure that they get any details they need, any logistics, um, so that they can meet us there. And, and if they need any support getting there, we can definitely. Um, you know, talk that through because we want everyone who wants to come to be able to join us.
0: It's, it sounds very exciting. We are talking with Murray Benjani, the campaign facilitator of fix the grid. That is fix hyphen the hyphen grid, where you could find out more about the uh, rally tomorrow. That's being sponsored by fix the grid and by slingshot of which she's co-executive director. We're going to take a break two minutes. And we're going to come back and talk a little bit more with Murray about Exactly that. Stay with us.
3: More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. When it's happening here in the valley we're talking about it.
2: What what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many many layers of of safety management in place at every source to ensure that we reduce as much risk as as possible.
9: Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area I have smelled gas.
3: 1015-1400-1240. We are the valley. We are WHMP.
8: One thing I like about working at ServiceNet is that in addition to being a manager, I can still be a clinician. If you're a licensed mental
9: health clinician who wants to make your own hours while also being part of a progressive community mental health team, join us at ServiceNet.
8: For people working private practice who want to also still have a commitment to community mental health, working at ServiceNet gives me the opportunity to do both at the same time.
9: Go to the employment page at servicenet.org.
4: The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786.
12: Go out to eat? Save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons? Save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy? Save 30%. The Shop 30 Store. Full-value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants. Plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you are going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 Store. Open right now at whmp.com.
3: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
0: And we are back. We are uh, Our guest today is the Lorax. Trying to protect our, our environment is Murray <laughs> Benjani, who is the uh, campaign facilitator of Fix the Grid and the co-executive director of Slingshot. And we are talking about the rally, which is going to be, hopefully, if weather permits it, um, happening tomorrow at 11 a.m. in Boston, You could find out more about it at fix-the-grid, and uh, you'll be able to see whether or not there's uh, weather's interfering, whether or not it's going to happen, and what it's going to be. It sounds like an important rally, but I also wanted to ask you, Murray, about something that troubles so many of us, which is a pipeline proposal in Springfield. Can you talk about what the proposal is and why you're concerned about it?
5: Definitely. This proposed, so it's an Eversource uh, project that they picked up after buying uh, Columbia Gas's projects and and infrastructure across the state a few years ago. And they have called this the quote unquote Western uh, Massachusetts reliability project um, and again that, that word reliability that a lot of utilities like to use to scare people into letting them do what they want to do to ensure that our system works well. Um, and uh, so in this case, it's it's pretty clear that this isn't a situation of reliability. Um, the, they want to build a pipeline from Longmeadow to Springfield. Um, through residential neighborhoods, environmental justice communities, uh, to an existing uh, site at the Bliss Street station right across the street from the casino in Springfield, where from there the gas would get distributed across uh, Springfield and surrounding communities. And they're saying that they need to do this because as things stand right now, There is a single point of failure for the gas system in Springfield. If something were to happen to the pipeline that currently crosses the Memorial Bridge, then residents would be out of luck. Um, The problem though (laughs) is that in creating this other pipeline, they aren't removing the single point of failure because this new pipeline would deliver its gas to the same Bliss Street station. So something were to go wrong at the Bliss Street station, that the same situation would occur where residents would have, you know, would, would lose their access to gas delivery for home heating and, and appliances. So um, it's pretty clear that this is a ploy by Eversource to um, make money off of this and secure, you know, uh, revenue and customers for decades to come when we need to be transitioning off of gas. It's expensive, it's dangerous, it's harmful to our health and our planet. um, And this pipeline is unnecessary. Um, Instead of investing millions of dollars in building this new pipeline that would be larger than any other pipeline in the city of Springfield, uh, we should be putting those dollars towards helping people electrify their homes and get off of gas in order to protect our health and our future.
0: And when you say state-designated environmental justice communities would be uh, impacted, what tell us why that concerns you and what that means.
5: So Massachusetts has a few different definition or a few criteria under the definition of um, environmental justice communities, mostly tying into language access, whether um, a large chunk of a population in the census tract uh, speaks a language other than English. Uh, there's also criteria around Um, ethnicity, uh, around socioeconomic status. And so um, the reason that that definition exists is that those communities are the ones that have, that bear a disproportionate burden of environmental impacts. They tend to, you know, for decades, they have been the places where polluting infrastructure has been cited because they often are seen as having less political power and they often do have less political power because they have less access to the systems that regulate these projects, um, either because they can't speak the language of the, you know, of the hearings that are occurring around it, or, um, It's always the poorest
0: communities that are disproportionately impacted, right? Always. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, before we leave, um, could you please leave our listeners with, uh, their takeaway about tomorrow's, about the need to attend tomorrow's rally.
5: Definitely. You know, I think I would leave listeners with this um, thought around digging in more on our electric system. When you turn on a light or you use an appliance in your home, where is that power coming from? That has huge impacts on our climate and on the health and well-being of communities across the region when those power plants are spewing out carbon dioxide and other harmful emissions. So let's, you know, think a lot more about where our power comes from and take action to make sure that our system is working in the way that we want it to, that it is accountable to us as the ones footing the bill, and that it is ensuring that we have decades more to live in these communities that we all care so much about. Um, so join us tomorrow to be part of rethinking our electric system and making sure that um, we're taking care of each other and our planet.
0: Marie Banjani, folks can find out about it by going to fix hyphen the hyphen grid. You could learn about tomorrow's Boston fee party rally and, um, I want to thank you for joining us today, Murray, and I want to thank you for all that you're doing to protect uh, not only our environment, but uh, the electricity that we all rely on so much. Thank you.
5: Thanks so much, Buzz. It's always a pleasure.
0: Really a pleasure. And look forward to the next time. We are going to take a break. When we come back, it's a real treat, not just for me, but for everyone. We're going to be talking to Seton Hall Law School professor Mark Denbo, who's made incredible contributions to our society uh, just at the time that we need him, not only for his law students, but for all of us. We're going to be back with Mark Denbow right after these messages. Stay with us.
3: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
8: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner addressed the ongoing controversies surrounding the Greenfield Police Department during her State of the City address Monday night. I understand
9: the gravity of the jury's decision citing racial animus. Hearing those painful words was not only devastating for me, but for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department.
8: The mayor also blamed city council for impeding progress toward police reform by refusing to allocate money toward a police audit.
9: When I requested funding from the city council to hire independent professionals to examine internal operations to detect the presence of implicit and systemic racial bias, I had
8: high hopes. Currently, the city is in the process of hiring three new officers with the help of a U.S. Department of Justice grant. A Southampton man is free on bond after pleading not guilty to sexual assault charges in Franklin Superior Court. Matthew James Tebow must maintain a curfew and wear a GPS monitoring device. In Franklin County, Tebow faces multiple counts of rape, as well as single counts of extortion by threat of injury and assault. He's also facing charges in Hampshire County, including four counts of rape, stalking, assault and battery, and numerous other charges. Amherst residents will get the chance to decide the fate of their new $98 million elementary school at the site of the former Fort River School on May 2nd. Town Council voted unanimously on that date for the Proposition 2.5 debt exclusion vote.
6: A little bit of sunshine this morning, mostly cloudy by noon, then scattered rain and snow showers after 3 p.m. with a high of 40 to 44. Cloudy tonight, some rain and pockets of freezing rain after 2 a.m., an overnight low of 28 to 34. Thursday, scattered showers in the morning, then partial afternoon sunshine a high of 44 to 48 and then a rain snow mix possible late in the day on friday 22 news storm team meteorologist brian lapis 1015 whmp
3: sunday mornings on whmp means polka polka carousel every sunday morning from 8 till noon tz brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits there are polka hits
4: Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care.
3: It's Polka Carousel, every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. To play this game, you've got to be as sharp as a blade, as quick as a one-timer, as tough as plexiglass. Oh, and having a solid dental plan? That's probably a good idea, too. Not my Hit the ice all season long right here on the UMass Sports Network. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. WHMP.
13: What's at the top of your shopping list? If you're a typical consumer, chances are there are more of the essentials and fewer treats these days. A new study conducted by Gravy Analytics found entertainment-related spending dropped nearly 30% between the end of 2021 and the end of last year. The latest air travel consumer report is out and it shows airlines have their work cut out for them if they want to please their passengers. On-time arrival and departure, luggage and flight cancellations appear to be big issues. 30% of complaints were about refunds. Home prices may not be falling, but rents are. A new report by Apartment List shows renters with new leases in January paid a median rent that was 3.5% lower than they would have paid last August. Economists say overbuilding has created a glut of apartments for rent. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk
3: with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
0: And welcome back to the show. And thank you for joining us. Dan Torres. Yes. We have a lot of guests, really incredible guests. But every once in a while, one is just personally, for me, a really special guest. And the guest that we have during uh, this segment is, in fact, such a person. He is uh, Seton Hall Law School's uh, Professor Mark Denbow. And I I just want to tell you, Dan, how we met. Um, It is November of 2004. The Supreme Court has said that uh, detainees at Guantanamo are entitled to what we call habeas purpose, that is, you can go into federal court and challenge the lawfulness of their detention, so I volunteer along with a lot of other people, and uh, the Center for Constitutional Rights is sort of herding us together and is putting on a training for those lawyers who are now coming on board to represent these people on a pro bono basis. It's, I think it's February, we're at a very large law firm down in Washington getting the training. And Bill Newman was for my first of eight clients. He was uh, co-counsel for about a year and a half. We both sit down at a table, and with us is a fellow by the name of Mark Denbo, a professor from Seton Hall, and his son Josh, who are volunteering to take on, I think, a couple of detainees themselves, being trained with us. I just want to flash forward. What I didn't know during that pleasant exchange and subsequent exchanges, both in a secure facility in or around D.C. and also down at the base, that dreadful prison camp. Um, I did not know that Professor Mark Denbow was going to rally law students and create something called the Center for Policy and Research, which we would all rely on to learn information, which we used not only in our pleadings, but when we spoke to the public about what was going on in that dreadful prison camp called Guantanamo Bay. With us today is that very Mark Denbo, and I'm so excited to have you here. Hello, Mark. Hello, boss. Good to talk again. Oh, it's just great to talk to you. You you have been a busy boy since those years, but let, let's start with those years. How many detainees did you end up representing, and uh, what happened with them?
7: Well, when we got started, my first two clients were two, two Tunisians. And I was assigned those two Tunisians at that session. We were there. And I was there with my son. And people concluded that these two Tunisians were father and son. So they thought it would be cute for Josh and me to represent father and sons. Well, it turns out they didn't know each other. There was no connection. (laughs) But we represented them for, they probably got out about 2009 and 2011. And um, they were. Very low value people. But during that time, I also um, represent um, um, a man named Bin Amin called Zubair and somebody else, Abu Zubeda, who I was assigned but turned out to be the first person ever tort- captured by the CIA and the first person tortured. And in fact, the torture program was written in the DOJ memos just to torture him by name. And then CIA had to admit he was never Al-Qaeda, never was a terrorist. He was very supportive of various groups. He was mostly uh, anti-pro-Palestinian. And they won't let him out, only they admit he didn't do anything, but he's called a forever prisoner because of the embarrassment of having created America's only torture program for somebody who was nothing that they claimed he was.
0: It's truly unbelievable. You went on, Mark Denbo, Too, um, I don't. Do, I don't know if you created the center. Did you create the center for policy and research at the Seton Hall uh, Law School yes. for yes. Guantanamo? Is that why you created it?
7: It started with Guantanamo, but after that, there was a series of racial things, the driving. You know, driving while black things. Ethel Rosenberg's innocence was one of the projects. Obviously, the. The subject we're going to talk about today, January 6th, was one. And um, so it's dealt with a lot of race, torture, Guantanamo, some international law issues, and um, a couple great injustices that were not fully appreciated.
0: I, uh, you know, I've been a lawyer for, you know, four and a half decades. Um, I hearken back. I think I remember being a law student, but I know when I was a law student um, it was so important to try to uh, imagine the kind of meaningful work you can do, the social justice kind of work that you could do as a lawyer, as a legal activist. It is mind-blowing to think what these students are experiencing, that you're um, having do this socially necessary work that nobody else seems to be doing. It's pretty incredible. What was your brainchild for this?
7: Well actually there's two things one is it dawned on me long before that that um uh, the problem with law school is not legal analysis it teaches analysis of cases and law very well but it actually teaches nothing about fact analysis or fact development even though very few people come to a lawyer and say i have a a doctrinal question they come to a lawyer with facts And the lawyer has to sort through them and find the appropriate theories so that was one part of it and then at one point i was in guantanamo and um, i was given a disc by an ap reporter who was there ap had obtained the the justification the legal evidence for the detention of 511 detainees because they had been set up for hearings and they gave me the disc and I wasn't quite sure what to do with it it had 500 files on it and one students came up and asked me if they could help I had a a separate story but and uh, I said sort of no I couldn't think of anything and then finally I'm looking at this disk just thumbing through it it seemed detailed and daunting and pointless and then I began to notice that the categorization of detainees was based on two things one had they committed hostile acts and the other were they a member of al-qaeda or the taliban and as i went through it just eyeballing it seemed an awful lot were never accused of having hostile acts so i gave it to my students and they went through all of it and they found 55 percent of the people held in guantanamo were specifically never charged with any hostile acts and um, then they went through to find out that 9% of them were alleged to be Al-Qaeda, and 60% of them were held there because they were in some way affiliated with the Taliban. And one of my students who had originally wanted to be a CIA, worked for the CIA, came in and was cursing and grumbling away. And he said, first of all, he said, I'm part of the Bush administration. If my postman comes and delivers me an envelope, he said, then I'm connected to them. And then he went on and he said you know how come we don't have any big guys he said you know here's somebody and i remember it very well the guy he said this is somebody and the charges against him were he was conscripted by the taliban to be an assistant cook and that that made him part of the taliban and his hostile act was that when the northern alliance attacked he surrendered to them yep and my, my student also said, there's an awful lot of assistant cooks in this collection. He said, we've got the sous chefs. Where are the goddamn chefs? And, um, and so they partly found out a variety of things and did a profile on them that got some interest. By accident, up at that point, the question had always been about treatment of detainees, torture, and so on, or process, should they get hearings? The students' discovery actually created and established the premise that, in fact, they had mostly the wrong people there. And I think that got adopted by a lot. And um, uh, the Times quoted it. For a while, we were credited with it. And then, as one of my students said, it's much better. People just report that as true, which it is. He said, and there's no way to challenge it anymore. He said, we're like the pea in the swimming pool. How do they ever get it out?
0: Uh. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, I can't tell you how important that work is the Guantanamo report. People, folks can um, Google Seton Hall Law School Center for Policy and Research. You can uh, look through the many, many reports, incredible, precious, important information. And meanwhile, you're at it again, Mark Dembo, you and your students. Uh, You're doing a profile of the January 6th insurrectionists and the Department of Justice's charges against them. Um, You were kind enough to let me look at some of your raw data here and some of the things that you're uh, working on in preparation for this morning. And I'm flabbergasted. Can you talk about what your students are doing, what the center is doing, and uh, what we're going to learn as a result of the efforts?
7: Yeah. um, I was starting a course Two years ago, or, and we were doing some things on issues that were still important. But one student said, I don't understand who these people were on January 6th, because our image was they were a bunch of sort of Neanderthals coming out of the woods and dragging their knuckles and beating people up. And we had assumed it was a very, very ugly and dangerous group. And I think everybody had believed that for a while. And so the FBI had, had charges against each person was made public. And so what my students did was go through all of the charges against everybody. And we only studied the 715 people arrested in the first year after January 6. There are several hundred more since then. But if you look at those people, what you'll find out is, first of all, um, it's pretty clearly it's it's white men there's all there are nominally I think there's four or five blacks who may not even have belonged there. one was a, a homeless person swept up um, and uh, there are uh, women are about six percent of the group but a bunch of people came as families and then of course the the you can divide it up into three parts. Half of the people arrested were only charged with trespass. And the other half were charged with felonies, obstruction, violence, or conspiracy. And the, we were interested in the fact that the first people who pled guilty and were prosecuted were the ones charged with trespass. And America, and I was one of them, we were all annoyed how minor and slight sentences they got. But actually, for first offense trespass people, they, were, they got significant sentences, and they weren't charged with anything more than being trespassers. Now, I don't mean they were tourists. Um, they were obviously in there trying to support the people who were trying to obstruct it. fact, like One judge said to several trespassers, look, without you folks there, the mob in front of you couldn't have succeeded. So you contributed to this, even if you didn't assault people or break them down.
0: Right, Professor uh, Mark Dembo and and the founder and director of uh, the Extraordinary Center for Pol- Policy and Research at Seton Hall, which is doing this study. When I was reading the data, it looks like the best estimate is there were between 4,000 and 5,000 participants in what was called the mob. Um, and you, you say that 60 of those individuals were charged with the, the very serious seditious conspiracy, 42 with a conspiracy to obstruct, Um, and you basically talk about three far-right groups that were at the center of this attempt to obstruct the certification of the presidential election, um, which, as we know, Vice President Pence insisted on going forward with that ceremonial um, act, and uh, at least 70% of us believe the right guy is sitting in the office, right? So, could you tell us about those Charges of seditious conspiracy and conspiracy to obstruct, and about those three far right groups.
7: Yes, I think that's the most dramatic part of it. It turned the most significant group are called the oath keepers, and that's unusual in the sense they think they're people who've taken an oath to uphold the Constitution, and that they and most of them are former military or law enforcement people believe that they have a patriotic obligation to uphold the Constitution, whose oath they swore to. And there were 26 oath keepers who showed up, 20 or arrested, 25 of which were charged with conspiracy. Now, there's two kinds of conspiracy, the seditious conspiracy and the conspiracy to obstruct the certification. One is more serious than the other, but they're both very serious. The other group is the Proud Boys. And the Proud Boys were a much less disciplined group. For instance, the Oath Keepers didn't commit violent acts. They didn't come with weapons. They knew not to do that, but they knew exactly how to move through the crowd, to go places, to get places, and to go where they were, and because they had military experience. And you can see them going through the crowd in a way, holding each other's hands on the back shoulder, staying as a group. So they were very focused and devoted. The Proud Boys are much more like a bunch of thugs spread around, and they have relatively little discipline. But it's interesting that there are only about 60 conspirators, because if you only had 60 conspirators, there's no possibility that those 60 people could break into the Capitol. They needed a mob. And of course, the lurking question is, how, where did the mob come from, and how did they know a mob would be there? When you say 4,000 to 5,000 people, there's something people have done studies, and the FBI has, have found the number of cell phones used in the Capitol during that time from numbers that had no business being in the Capitol. That is, they got rid of Congress, staff, everybody else else's weeded out, and they come in there between four and 5,000 different cell phones, were wrongfully in the Capitol that day. Mm-hmm. That's the best estimate of how to figure out how many people were there because they came and went. Um, but so, but obviously, the conspirators had to know that there would be a mob there ahead of them. And of course, that's where um, uh, Trump's statements will come, it'll be wild. There were a variety of other statements made more boldly in late November starting in or, or mid-December. And of course, the president announced we're going to go down there now and and join in. Um, so the difficult problem is not who the conspirators were. It's who knew the situation would be appropriate for a relatively small group of people.
0: That, to... is, that is a great place for us to take a break. We're going to take a two-minute break. We are talking to Seton Hall law professor, Mark Denbo, he's also the director of the Seton Hall Law School, the Center for Policy and Research, which has now turned its substantially effective attention on another historic phenomenon, which unfortunately we all have to face, which is January 6th was an insurrection that challenged our ability to continue as a democracy in this country we're going to be back with, I got to admit it, one of my heroes, Professor Mark Denbow, right after these messages. Stay with us.
3: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
8: The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Winesick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Winesick Nursery, Route 9 and Hadley, and online at winesicknursery.com.
3: A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's homeowner with Danny Lipford, home improvement ideas and advice. Today's homeowner with Danny Lipford, Sundays at noon, 1015-1400-WHMP.
4: There's the Sauvignon Blanc side and the salami sandwich side. The brick and feather beer side and the broccoli side. The deli side and the Don Julio side. State Street in Northampton has two sides. Grocery on one side, beer, wines, and spirits on the other. Cooper's Corner in Florence has two sides. Grocery on one side, beer, wines, and spirits on the other. But the nice thing about State Street and Cooper's, you don't have to pick a side. You can choose both sides. At both stores. The world feels so divided sometimes. For once, don't choose sides. Go to both sides. At both stores. State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits in Northampton and Cooper's Corner on the other side of Northampton in Florence. Two sides, same coin.
9: The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult hoping to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam. The Literacy Project offers free classes at five locations in Franklin and Hampshire counties. We also offer classes to help you prepare for college and to help you plan for a career.
7: If you want to learn the
9: Literacy Project is a place for you. To find out about Literacy Project classes in Northampton, call 413-584-6755. To find out about our classes in Greenfield, Orange, Amherst, and Ware, check us out online at literacyproject.org. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you want support furthering your education and accomplishing career goals.
7: If you want to learn
8: Project
3: is a place for you. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
0: And this is Buzz Eisenberg. Thank you for being back with us. We are speaking with Seton Hall Law Professor uh, Mark Denbo. I, I just have to say, as an attorney, you know, a, a good lawyer joke, I'll laugh with the rest of them. But the truth is, there are some things that make me. So proud of my chosen calling as an attorney. And part of it is what happens in the law schools that throughout the country, where we have clinics that are run like people like our run by people like our guest, Mark Denbo, that that will uh, dig into the trenches and deal with social ills. It could be the innocence projects that happen uh, uh, so importantly to free people who are wrongfully convicted of crimes they didn't commit or domestic violence, or helping uh, immigrants who um, need the help they cannot afford to get. Well, such is this involvement in history that Mark Denbo has um, not only caused, but permitted his um, young law students and not-so-young law students to be a part of. It is the uh, Center for Policy and Research that can do things like the historic work that he's doing around January 6th. I guess, Mark, My a big question is, in terms of this group of insurrectionists, is, um, uh, particularly the 60, but also the other ones, the other thousands of people, what is your takeaway? What have you learned as a result of your efforts and that of your students?
7: Well, the, one of the things that I've just been collecting now, because we had a chance to see it, is that the number of people and it's maybe half of them have already been convicted by judges by juries and many of them have pled guilty i think i think more people have died from that group than can convicted of a crime in the in the two years since then um the justice department has been winning every single case and um uh, they've been doing it carefully and right and my sense of what's happening is that they are focusing now on the very, very toughest ones. I mean, the Proud Boy conspiracy case is going on. But the fact that the Oath Keepers were all found guilty of seditious conspiracy is kind of remarkable. And um, um, you know, one of the views has been that the Justice Department, which is fairly criticized for some things, and I would have criticized them for that until I looked into it, has been very fast. They indicted 11 days after January 6th, the first group of conspirators. Now, that means, when Buzz, you would know this, to get an indictment of people, you have to know who they are, you have to collect the evidence, you have to impanel a grand jury, you Indeed. have to bring the witness. Yeah. And they did it in less than two weeks. A week after that, they did another conspiracy indictment. And those indictments, they've been winning. And um, I would say that half of the people they arrested were arrested within 90 90 days. Um, Now they're still picking up people. And I think there are quite a few people out there looking over their shoulders still. Because there's an interesting group called the Sedition Hunters. And they're just a bunch of citizens who are very good at using the facial recognition technology mm. and go through all the film, find a face and then check and see where they can find it. And then they turn them over to the CIA and they're still doing this. Yeah, they are still doing it.
0: Uh, I think we're going to have to have you back because uh, my our producer here, Dan Torres. Dan, you are the only person I know who's read most of the eight hundred and fifty page January six committee report. And I know that you have a ton to ask Mark Denbo about. Well, we have about a minute,
2: but my question is, what does your work that you've been doing January 6th on, on Guantanamo Bay say about the rule of law in America today?
7: Well, I guess the answer is as it has always been. Mm. It's mixed with some successes, some failures, considerable amount of sort of inadequacy, but it is grinding its way along. I mean, after all, there were 773 people in Guantanamo, and now there's 39. Uh, It's true that none of them were ever released as a result of uh, lawyers succeeding before courts, but the same lawyers succeeded in getting them out by doing lawyering before the House, the Senate, with the State Department, various negotiations going on. So the lawyering as a whole and the law as a whole is grinding people out well you're one
0: of the major people that have been helping to grind people out i'm so grateful for you not just for what being here with us today mark Denbo, but also for all that you have done uh as a patriot and as an attorney so i want to thank you for that for those who've been listening in the morning thank you for spending some of your day with us for those of you who are listening in the afternoon coming up right after the news break there's another full hour of talk to talk including our district attorney david sullivan and Cool Films with filmmaker Larry Hott. For Bill Newman, for Dan Torres, for our WHMP team, and for Mark Dembo, professor at Seton Hall. thank you for joining us.
3: This is Talk the Talk. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 1015, 1400, and 1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman program. WHMP. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton.